Good evening, everybody. Good to see you. It's really nice to get to talk to some of you today. It really makes me feel more tuned in to the experience. So the second night talk is a little bit easier. Although in the 5,000-some-odd pages of the Pali Canon, what's the topic for the evening? It's always the big struggle of the day. So I, I wanted to offer a really a practice-based talk. Last night I was a, kind of a little bit all over the territory of practice and perspective and some philosophy and some heart and kind of trying to get us into this territory. And now that you guys have been well-practiced for a couple of days, I want to talk about what I think is one of the most important and probably the most useful teachings that we see that doesn't get the credit it deserves. And it's known as the four great efforts. How much effort does this take to accomplish this awakening game? Um, it shows up in a lot of places. It's, it's in the Eightfold Path. It's the seventh path factor of the Eightfold Path known as Sama Vayama. It's also all four of the four great efforts. It's one of the three meditation trainings that I kind of walked you through. So we have this meditation training of concentration or focused attention. We try to hold our attention into an object. We wander, we recognize we wander. Mindfulness, recognition, forgetfulness. Let's come back, let's come back. And then this movement says it all about everything. Uh, as some people reflect on it, sometimes we get lost in thought on these retreats or during our practice and we think, I think I'm going to think about this. That's pretty good. Certainly better than what's back here waiting for me. Right? So it, 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 there's a lot going on in this moment, this experience. Even if we do recognize, even if mindfulness is present, even if we do recognize that we slip away, that we've wandered, it doesn't mean we're just going to come right back with this kind of kind, forgiving attitude. Sometimes... Let's be honest, in the whole waking up game, sometimes we prefer to be asleep. Right? Look at the schedule, like, oh, if I could just sleep for these 45 minutes and wake up to the sound of the bell, that would be sweet. Right? So what is this word? What does this mean? So what, what, what kind of effort does it take to do this work? And it can be summed up really in four words. The whole of the path, the whole of the practice is to prevent, to overcome, to develop, and to maintain. This is something that can be done on the moment-to-moment experience. It's something that can be done in the going-ons of our life in the bigger picture. So this word, uh, vayama, which is translated as effort, right effort, is, is... Pretty good, but not quite right, because effort in our culture, in our English way of thinking with things, is too correlated with striving. Put an effort, do the work, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, that kind of sort of tough love effort that we're all used to. It's not that kind of effort. Sometimes it's translated as effort, sometimes it's translated as being diligent, which is a little bit too much like effort, but a kind of diligence, a kind of commitment. Uh, it can also be associated with enthusiasm, which I think is a little bit better, because enthusiasm is a kind of, I'm going to do this, it doesn't denote too strong of a quality of striving. But I think the word that really does the best description, diagnostically and also kind of pragmatically, is application. How do we, what is the application? And we, we know that in 
learning environments and that in in our life and our work and our world and the word application we even have applications on our phones right application is something that we're a lot more familiar with so in which ways and how do we apply the mind what's the application in this particular moment and also you've noticed some of you maybe have noticed who have read any books on Buddhism or <coughs> have studied the Dharma uh, there's a lots of list of fours four is a big number Four is a good number. Four directions, four elements, four foundations of mindfulness, four noble truths, four Brahma Viharas, four great efforts, four means of accomplishment. Four, 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 four. Also, music, music meter, and music is in four, four time. Four is a really, uh, is a number that's used in lots of different contexts. It's also in early Buddhism, the reason why there's so many fours is that people believe because they didn't write things down, the Buddha used it as a mnemonic device for memorizing things. Not that I'll get into it, but if we were in a classroom and we're studying this stuff, if you put all the lists of fours side by side with each other, they actually read across into a kind of formula, which is very interesting. So there's a lot of this stuff in the coding, and I think the most essential application that we engage in in mindfulness and dharma work is, is these four efforts, these four applications. So I'm going to talk about those tonight, which means I'm going to talk about four applications, five hindrances, and seven awakening factors. So this is being recorded. But as you know, and as you'll find when you start to dig into this, these teachings, you find there's no avoiding the lists. But the lists aren't lists to memorize. They're applications, they're formulas. If they're, they're mnemonic devices, they're memorized tools to remember this and then apply it to experience and remember it and apply it to experience. So what are we trying to prevent? What are we trying to overcome? And what are we trying to develop and maintain? Pretty simple. So we look at what we're trying to prevent and overcome are uh, destructive, unskillful, unwholesome mental states, states of mind, Right? So the whole approach towards Dharma work and the whole approach to the development of the mind, what sits at the bottom of this is actually ethics. This is an ethical... The Buddha was very determined to ethicize consciousness. That was his primary concern. Was not to have wisdom and understand the ultimate nature of reality and all these kind of metaphysical, mystical things. He wasn't interested in that at all. He was interested in developing a mind that was a harmless mind, a mind of generosity, a mind of kindness. He was, his primary aim was for us to develop and to thrive and to live in a mind that was ethical, for lack of a better word. So, uh, so to prevent unwholesome, unwholesome mental states, we could use that word. It's not so bad. Unskillful, pretty good. I borrow from the emotional intelligence language because I think it's the best, and that's trying to overcome, uh, trying to prevent and overcome destructive forces in the mind. What is a destructive force in the mind? A destructive force in the mind is a force, an attitude in the mind, something like greed, jealousy, hatred, envy, resentment, uh, aversion, attachment, all these kinds of things, confusion. It's a lot of them. A lot of destructive forces in the mind, unfortunately. In the Buddhist psychology manual, they list 14. And there's subcategories. And what it is, a destructive force in the mind is that it's not conducive to my happiness or well-being or yours. 
That's what makes it destructive. It kind of goes round and round. It doesn't really go anywhere. It just creates nihilism and, and uh, apathy and uh, envy and all these kind of these forces in the mind that don't really go anywhere. So we want to prevent those, and we want to, we want to prevent those when they're not here. How do you do that? We want to overcome them when they are here. Uh, and that's, that's a largely the first two great efforts is to prevent and overcome. And of course, you probably are following along. The second, the, the latter half of the formula is to, uh, to develop constructive, wholesome, skillful mental states in the mind, to develop those and to maintain those. Right, so we want to prevent something, we want to overcome it when it's here, we want to develop something and we want to maintain that. And the, and the way that the Buddha talks about this, he talks about an old tree in a field leaning. And so a tree that leans to the east, a tree that leans in the direction of a constructive, wholesome, skillful mental state, if it's leaning in that direction, if it's heading in that direction, it will fall in that direction. And that will create a path. And that is the path that we want to go down. We want to, we want to do what we can to lean that tree in that direction. And just as though a tree that leans to the west uh, a tree that's leaning towards hatred and envy and avarice and despair uh, and disappointment and regret and resentment, that the tree that is leaning in that direction will fall in that direction and will create that path. Right, so it's pretty clear what we're up to. And, and really, all day and all day yesterday, you've probably been noticing there's these kind of emerging things kind of coming. It's like, like no, no, I probably don't want to put my... That's, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. And so even moment to moment, you're, you're really kind of dealing with this in every single moment of your life. Right? But a lot of it we, we forget or we don't know or we're not paying attention or we get wrapped up. Right? And we come in these retreats and then we're like, man, it's like a lot of destructive forces in my mind. Right? And so we don't want to get into this kind of um, right or wrong mentality about it. It's just that... Uh, we're not, the thing that we have to really remember is we're not bad or wrong for having the mind state. Right? It's not an assessment of our values. It's just kind of the consequences of being born into a mind-body system. Right? So that's, that, that's why the metta and a lot of the practices I teach are so important because how many of you got in some kind of unwholesome, destructive mental state today and took it very personally? Right? It's hard to not do that. And so how do we prevent? And I, this always confused me until very recently. I was like, well, how do I prevent an unwholesome, destructive mind state from arising in my mind? How do I keep that out? And I was very confused. And for years I thought, well, you just have to be very concentrated and you just kind of got to keep it at bay right, by focusing on something else. And I, that doesn't really quite work because there's too much striving. And when there's too much striving and too much kind of diligence, that becomes a destructive state in and of itself. So you can't use a destructive mental state to prevent a destructive mental state. You can't use the poison for the cure. Right? And so actually, this is a huge... The, the way we prevent these forces from arising in the mind is by having uh, integrity and by developing what the Buddha calls sila, which is another way to say integrity or ethics. Is that we, it's through behavioral, the way we behave and the way we act in the world. Have you ever done something or said something uh, that was mean or kind of short or kind of shitty or kind of, uh, and then later on you felt bad for felt bad about it? Well, you could have prevented that by not engaging in that behavior. 
The problem is we come in these retreats and we're like, oh man, I've got lots of things I've done that I don't feel great about. So moving forward, we notice that we really want to, uh, the only really way to prevent is to really live with integrity and to live in line with our values, whatever your values are. If honesty is an important value to you, then try to be as honest as you can. If being loyal to your friends and to your family and to your loved ones is very important to you, then you should do that. And so we, and that's not easy, right? It's easy to kind of put when we get angry and we get upset and we get afraid. Sometimes we'll put our values aside for the moment and feel bad about it later. So we really want to understand that most of the practice begins with ethics, begins with behavior, and begins with really cleaning up the way that we live in the world, which is, you know, one of the one of the core trainings that we engage in. The other way we can prevent this, and this is what we've been working on uh, with metta and this kind of different framework of dukkha or suffering, is, is to embrace dukkha, to really embrace the, the pain, the anguish, the difficulties of our life, and to say, to say yes to what's hard rather than try to resist it or push it away. And that's really hard. We don't want to do that. We react to that. And so what happens is usually in that reaction and that pushing away and that not wanting things to be a certain way, what we end up doing is we end up actually developing an unwholesome mind state to try to get rid of, to try to annihilate that. And you see this, right? You probably see this with pain in the body or boredom in the mind. When we start kind of fighting, we get like an inner fight going. And once once that happens, you've already lost anyway. Where do you go to from there? That kind of internal conflict that we find. So we can really prevent these. And also part of this, also the mindfulness side of this, is we, uh, and we forget this a lot, is we have to remember, we have to constantly remember and reflect on our values. What are our values? I know we all probably have a vague sense of what they are, but it's good if we're pretty clear about where we draw the line in the sand around certain behaviors, where we draw the line in the sand around certain things that we do. And it goes down to very, very small things around you, know, the things that we eat and how much we spend on digital devices and the people we, we ignore in our lives as a result of looking at our digital devices. Or There's lots of different things we kind of need to remember. So that's where mindfulness, remember to, remember to recognize what's important to you. Don't forget, quick, so quick to forget. Right? So quick to forget the value of kindness when somebody cuts you off on Interstate 40. It goes pretty fast. Right? So this is really the first application. It's a behavioral application. And you probably know this already. You've probably seen, and we, make, we all make behavior changes in our life, and it doesn't take long to realize, oh, that was a good move. Not doing that is uh, helpful to me and helpful to others. So it's not just about us. It's what makes it constructive is it's, it's conducive to my well-being, and it's also conducive to your well-being. And that's the, the kind of criteria for, for what they call constructive emotions. And these types of constructive emotions and these behaviors, they are born in the mind. So everything, we, can, we want to try to catch things at their earliest onset. So we can catch what, what, what in Tibetan Buddhism they call the spark before the flame. And you probably notice that here today. You ever notice you kind of catch something real quick and you're like, no, 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 don't go there. Right? And we get better at it, and you can get better at that. You get skilled at that. The 
So this is really the preventing these kind of unwholesome, destructive forces in the mind is really about how we live, how we behave. And so there's lots of things we can do there. The second one is more about technique, actually. It's more kind of meditative chops. And it's things that can really get fine-tuned and developed on these longer retreats because you have all these long periods of time to work with them. And so how do we overcome destructive forces in the mind that have arisen? It's like the preventing didn't work. It's like, here it is. Aversion, confusion, attachment. It's in my mind. Here it is. I got it right here. I can show it to you. And again, not bad or wrong, no failure, no, no judgment, just, you know, a mind state. It's just a mind state. It's just a temporary mind state that has arisen as a result of causes and conditions that are probably well out of your domain of control or agency. So to do this, this is where it gets really, really hard. This is where self-honesty is so important, is that if we're going to overcome any kind of destructive force state in the mind, we have to be able to recognize that, which means that we have to be familiar with it. Do we want to get familiar with our anger, with our betrayal, with our, with our shame, with our sadness? With our, we don't actually generally want to be familiar with those. So the, the practice of these efforts really changes the game. And, and the Buddha said, actually, no, you really do. You want to be very, very familiar with all of these things. Because if there's no familiarity, there will be no recognition. Therefore, there will be no overcoming. See what I mean? So this is why doing what we can to abandon this kind of I'm a bad person for having the mind state, we really want to get that understood as quickly as possible. Otherwise, we, we, we find yourself in kind of a lot of uncharted territory. So we try to recognize, and this is where some of us talked about this in the groups today, there's uh, a technique, a, a Burmese technique, it's part of a Vipassana technique that many of you might be familiar with called noting, where we, 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 kind of, we, we start to label psychological behavior, habit patterns in the mind. We just might start with thinking. So we sit here, we notice thinking, oh, thinking again, okay, thinking, okay, thinking again. That's a very kind of easy entry point and then we can become more specific with that label. We can notice and think, oh, this is past. This is the past. Or this is the past. This is regret from the past. This is resentment from the past. This is disappointment. So what is this? It's like, I use the analogy of it's like, these, these, there's, there's themes and then there's variations on these themes. So we really want to try to label these psychological behaviors, these hindrances, as themes. So the theme could be, um, the theme could be disappointment. But then I can get sucked into all the stories of all the ways I'm disappointed. It's like I don't want to do that. I just want to, I want to tap the tab, but I don't want the drop-down menu to come down. Because once you open that drop-down menu, you're gone. And all the disappointment things in my life that didn't work out that I need to work through and need to fix and need to change and need to process. No, 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 no. Disappointment, that's what that is. It's just disappointment. Thinking about the past disappointments of my life on this meditation retreat, it's probably not going to serve me. <laughs> it's so enticing, though. I think you want to jump in there and fix it. I know you do. Right. Fixing is just another hindrance. Control, attachment, wanting, wanting things to have gone differently. Right? 
So many things. If I could show you the list of things that I wish didn't happen, we'd be here for a long time. Do nobody any good. Right. So we want to, so we, we do, we, we want to, we want to embrace, we want to say yes as we say, we want to become familiar. Well, what is, what is anger and what is it really like? Okay, it's hot, it's warm, it's not wanting, it feels tight in the body. Right. We want to familiarize ourselves with these states. And so we want to try to overcome. And I'll go back and revisit the hindrances once I get through these four. So we really, it's in, it really, it's in our best interest to understand the kind of destructive nature of our mind and kind of the ways that it gets us. Because if, we, if there's recognition, if there's mindfulness, now, now you're at least on a level playing field. You're not even done yet. But at least you're on a level playing field where like you can see the enemy and you, you can make some choices. But with no recognition, there's no liberation. So it's in your best interest to recognize these things. And then so when we, so that's the first two, that's really kind of overcoming, uh, preventing and overcoming these kind of destructive tendencies. And then we want to develop and maintain the constructive tendencies. Right? And the most lowest hanging fruit that we want to develop and practice is mindfulness. Because mindfulness is, is the only thing that will allow you to recognize. What does recognize mean? It means to recognize something that you've recognized a million times, but now you want to, with awareness, okay, now I'm, I'm recognizing this and I'm recognizing this. Now, now we're getting somewhere. As it says in the Satipatthana Sutta, when I have anger in my mind, I know I have anger in my mind. When I have contempt in my mind, I know I have contempt in my mind. Judgment, criticism, I know I have it in my mind right now. I can see it. It's in my mind. It got in. Right? It's good. I want to see that. So mindfulness, we want to develop it. And, then, and how we develop it is we practice. We come on these retreats. We sit for 20 or 30 minutes a day. This is where mindfulness is a, is a practice. So we want to, we want to practice and understanding that, and, and this, there's a lot of debate about this, and I'll just give you my opinion. There's a, there's a lot of debate in the meditation world that would say something like, is mindfulness a wholesome mental state or not? Or is it ambiguous? And there's a whole range of opinions about that. But... Um, Mindfulness in my mind and, and from my research and my studies and especially and particularly in the teachings of Abhidharma, mindfulness is considered one of 26 beautiful mental factors. So mindfulness, it's good. Even if it's not true, I suggest that you believe so. It's more helpful. Mindfulness is a wholesome mental state. Mindfulness is constructive. Mindfulness is ethical. Mindfulness remembers your values, remembers your sense of worth, remembers your goodness, remembers Abhrahma Vihara. Mindfulness is, 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 your, is a team player in the game of liberation. It's the forward center. It's the Michael Jordan of the mind. Right? So it's good to kind of notice that, to be in that. Okay, mindfulness. I want to develop this mindfulness. And so what we try to do is we try to develop this practice. We understand that mindfulness is, is, is entirely correlated to what I'll talk in great detail about tomorrow night, which is Nibbana or Nirvana which is a strongly, very misunderstood concept and in later schools of Buddhism has gotten so advanced and so put on a pedestal it's taught as if something we could never experience when in fact everybody here probably experienced hundreds of moments of Nibbana today but you didn't maybe have that framework. 
So mindfulness is equated to Nibbana because it's constructive, it's non-reactive, it's recognition, it's being able to kind of be in the experience with a little bit of presence, with some ease, with some metta, ordinariness. I'm here, it's okay to be here, I'm good, no problem. What's next? From that, from that perch, from that kind of posture towards experience. A beautiful mental state. And it's one of seven. It's the first of seven awakening factors, which I'll talk about more as I get through these four. So, so in many ways, and this is well organized in the four foundations of mindfulness, this is very, very core Dharma stuff, but a lot of times it doesn't get taught in this way because people don't recognize the connections between them. So in a, in a very kind of straightforward kind of way, our goal in practice is to prevent and overcome the five hindrances and develop and to maintain these seven awakening factors. So on the field of liberation, it's five hindrances versus seven awakening factors. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of struggle that we're in. We have the two-man advantage, which is cool, right? We have our negative attention bias, but we have seven versus five. Mm-hmm. Levels the playing field a little bit, right? And then, so we practice that. And then the, then the question is, how do we maintain this? So how do we, how do we, in maintenance, it's about keeping that tree leaning in the better direction, which takes constant, constant, moment-to-moment mindfulness, practice, lifestyle choices, the way that we live, the way that we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to others. <coughs> Everything that we do is relevant, there's nothing on the other side of the wall of Dharma. That's it. It's everything. And actually, probably the most basic way to understand Dharma just kind of means everything. Right? For the purpose of overcoming these hindrances, overcoming these destructive habits of mind. It's largely really an ethical game. How we feel about ourselves, how we feel about the world, how we relate to that. It's hard. It's hard work. So going back to overcoming these hindrances, what are these five hindrances? The Pali word is nivarana for hindrance. It's also associated with a lot of big ticket items. So when you look at kind of the destructive habits of the mind, there's quite a few things. There's there's hindrances, nivarana. There's craving, reactivity, tanha. There's clinging, kanda upadana. There's the asavas, the defilements. It's all the same territory. It's just different ways to talk about the same thing. That, and hindrance is a good word, I think, because it hinders you. It hinders progress on the path. It hinders my sense of joy, my sense of happiness. It's obstruction. It creates limits. Some of you might know there's teachings in the early canon on this figure, Mara, who's kind of like the Buddha and Mara are kind of like the devil god figure in Pali discourses, if you... Think about it that way. And Mara is the one who creates limits. You ever feel limited? You ever feel stuck? You ever feel like, well, I can't because. That's Mara. That's, that's the hindrance to the thing. You can't. So we, we want to be able to, we really want to become very familiar with these hindrances. We want to be friendly to them. Well, hello, disappointment. How nice of you. I haven't seen you since the last time I sat here. <laughs> you gonna be back later? Cool. Bring resentment and betrayal along, you know? We'll have, a, we'll have a little party. Right? You know they're gonna show up. My friend Vinny tells this story, this analogy that I like, where he talks about mindfulness is like the gatekeeper, as I mentioned before. 
and, and mindfulness is like the bouncer at the rock club, right? And all these shady characters start showing up to get in, right? And it's like we're trying to keep them at bay. But if, we, but if we don't let them in, if we don't let the mental state, if we try to fight it off, then we're like, we got like eight gnarly characters here we got to deal with. It's better just to let them in. Let the other guys deal with it. Because a lot of times we have that aversion. We're trying to resist and push something out. So you can't let something go until you let it in. Right? And that's where the concentration gets really tight and gets really, really rigid. Right? With that kind of like, you know, so it's, it, it's complicated. So you want to kind of get to know these hindrances. The hindrances, five hindrances. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard these before. Uh, and their most kind of accurate translation is as attachment, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. I'll kind of go through them and talk about some of the antidotes to them. So really what we're dealing with, we're trying to overcome moment to moment. And and much of the work we do on retreats is really, um, in fact, I'm thinking about teaching retreat, the whole theme of the retreat is hindrances and awakening factors because that's largely what we're we're up to. And so attachment, also known as aversion, um, is wanting, craving, uh, wanting attachment, being 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 uh, trying to get something here that's not here. Wanting things to be more pleasant, wanting the mind to be more peaceful. It's being very attached to a particular outcome. Right? It's a strong, strong force in the mind. It's maybe one of the strongest. It's also correlated to greed. This kind of demand on it, on reality, right? And the great thing about attachment, really, is the, it, one of the easiest ways to overcome it is to, it's just by recognizing it. And it's not, we don't have to be all that skilled, there's not a lot going on there. So when we really, recognition is the basis for removal. And that's true with all the hindrances, so we, that's why, again, we want to be familiar with them. Recognition is always the basis for removal. Recognition is the basis for overcoming. No recognition... No overcoming. You can't liberate yourself from something that you can't identify. Right? So it's that kind of deep wanting in the mind. And then with mindfulness, I'll, I'll kind of weave these back and forth because there's an interplay going on here. So what we do is if we take the hindrance, if we call it, a, let's call it an obstacle, attachment is an obstacle to liberation in a particular moment. When mindfulness is present, we do what I call the bait and switch. We take an obstacle and we turn it into an object. Right, so we're feeling like we want something, we're feeling attached, and then mindfulness recognition comes in, and we go, oh, oh, I'm attached. Now this recognition, now this isn't obstructing me. Now I, it's an object that I can actually work with, like a pain in my knee or the sound of a bird. It's just another object of mind. Right? And in that experience, we, we can have kindness or we can let it go. We, we, can, we have a whole host of choices. Right? And so now you're working with it. You're working with it. One of the teachers I like, Sayad Artejaniya, says, in, in this context, you're either going to work with it or you're going to believe it. Do I really believe I need this moment to be different? Or am I going to work with the fact that I'm wanting this moment to be different? And that's really the basis for lots of our suffering and lots of these hindrances is born in the idea that things should somehow be different. 
I should be different, the hall should be different, this moment should be different, the weather should be different, the present, everything should fucking be different. And then I would be happy. But I'm not happy because things are like this. And I'm very attached, we are very attached. Right? So that's a really, aversion is a really great practice because it's not that hard to recognize. You know, again, you don't need to be the Zen master on the mountaintop meditating in the cave for 500 years. It's like you can, you can catch it right away. You can get to work right away on this one. It's a big one. Aversion is basically just the other side of the coin of attachment. It's, it, it's the not wanting side of it, the resistance, the aversion, the pushing away. The, and, and a whole range of things, that different sounds, different smells, different body sensations, different mental states. Right? So we can have this kind of really strong aversion. And the aversion is, is a little bit more destructive, I think, than the greed <coughs> even, because we start to... Greed is so associated with wanting to get something that will make me happy, so it's a little bit lighter in the mind. Because if, 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 the, if the attachment would work out, we, would, we think we would be happy, so it's a little bit lighter. But the aversion, we take it a lot more personally. Right? There's the not wanting, and then there's the why I'm not wanting it, and then there's just the, like, I can't, I, I can't be happy. I just can't be happy right now. I can't be content right now. It's almost like a choice to suffer. I'm going to suffer with this right now because this is really not wanted. And so like, like attachment, it can be worked with by bringing mindfulness and you can recognize that there's a version. But again, even that's not a lot, a lot enough. Usually in, classic, uh, in the classic teachings, loving kindness or metta is really taught as the primary, I don't want to say antidote, but really the primary thing that counteracts that. So, so, where, 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 so where, whatever I'm bringing aversion to, can I bring, can I bring kindness either to that aversion or can I bring ki- kindness to the experience that I'm, the pain in my knee, the kind of heat in my body, the tension in my neck. So I can be kind with the pain, which is backing to that embracing that dukkha, or I can be kind to myself for having the aversion. It's okay. It's okay that I'm not wanting this right now. It's okay that I'm hurting a little bit and that I'm pushing against this. Of course, of course I don't want this to be happening. It's okay. So there's a little bit of more of an ease and that lightens up. And so in many ways, I think largely what we're working with in meditation is just working with trying to develop mindfulness in the face of attachment and aversion. Wanting and not wanting, wanting and not wanting. Got to get this, got to get rid of that. Get this, be happy, get rid of that, be happy. But I can't get this and I can't get that. Gee, I'm not happy now, I'm scared. I'm not going to get what I want. Right, so this is, this is, you know, this is a big part of your day. Right? So what a great thing to start, what a great system to turn the tables on that. To actually, you know what? No, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to let these be the drivers of my life. And they will arise and they will continue to rise. That's what Buddha's saying. These are, these are built-in habits of mind. They have nothing to do with you. There's millions of years of human evolution. As Tejaniya says, the mind, the hindrances don't belong to you. The mind doesn't belong to you. It's just your job to take care of it. Mm-hmm. At whatever costs. And so they get a little bit more complicated as you go down the list. And so we get into restlessness. Restlessness is another hindrance. And restlessness gets really problematic because it's usually restlessness of mind and body. 
The body gets restless, the mind gets restless, the mind gets restless, the body gets restless, they both get restless. Restlessness sometimes called restlessness and worry. Psychologically, it's more of a worrying. And, and somatically, it's more of a kind of just can't seem to get it together. You know what I mean? You get the heebie-jeebies. You're just chasing the body around. And that restlessness gets cooked up. And that's a hard hindrance to work with. And so this can be brought on. This is why I, I'm a kind of a little bit pushing back on the attention concentration. Is this can be brought, brought on. Largely, meditators bring on restlessness by excessive striving. Right? Excessive striving. <clears throat> trying too hard. Tr- overforcing the attention towards a particular object kicking on the fight and flight, kicking on the amygdala, midbrain. And then what do you do? You, well, I, now that I'm in fight or flight, I'm going to try a little bit harder. Here's another secret. You cannot use any of the hindrances to overcome any of the hindrances. <laughs> so we get restless and we, we, we call up our good friend aversion and say, you need to get rid of this restlessness because I'm over it. Now you have restlessness and aversion. <laughs> And now you're attached to the moment where there's no restlessness and no aversion. Now you have attachment, restlessness, and aversion. And you're getting more restless and more aversive and more attached because you can't put out a fire with gasoline. Although by all appearances, that gasoline sure looks like water, doesn't it? <laughs> what the hell is this stuff? I, put it, I keep getting bigger and bigger. That's what it is. We, we pour gasoline on the fire thinking it's water. And now you have five hindrances running around in your mind. You're ready to, ready to burn the Dharma hall down. <laughs> You've had this moment, right? So we have to be kind of careful of these things. So the restlessness of mind and body is brought on by the success of striving. It's also brought on, and the teachings, it's brought on by poor behavior, by bad sila. You ever make a bad choice and then feel really restless after it? Go, Man, I can't if I did that. I wish I didn't do that on my game. And so, so that's another sila aspect of it is that when we, when we do or say things that we regret or maybe we're dishonest, even if it's just a simple white lie, we, we get that immediate, oh, man, I just shouldn't have done that. I wish I hadn't done that. And then that restlessness gets in. So another way to do that. The other kind of obvious antidote, maybe it's not obvious and it's hard, one of the... Uh, most basic ways to kind of bring restlessness down is mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of breathing is really trying to cool down the body. So, so that's kind of a nervous system thing. It's trying to, trying to get more into the parasympathetic nervous system, taking some long out-breaths, bringing a more heightened awareness, trying to unhook as best you can from whatever the cognitive restlessness is and trying to really get yourself back into a kind of coolness. So that will oftentimes counteract it. But the thing that makes restlessness so frustrating is, is again, it's brought on by excessive striving oftentimes, and then we we excessively strive more. We try to meditate our way out of the restlessness. Have you seen this? And that's that's exactly, and that creates, and that's where the restlessness kind of gets confused, it gets frustrated, it gets really, so these destructive mental states, they take on deeper, richer, more challenging, destructive qualities, like really being really frustrated at ourselves and our inability to cope with the moment. 
not knowing, we'll be confused. What do I do? What, what did he say? He did a thing last night. He said there was something to do about this. I don't fucking remember even what it was. But, you know, it's like you get really going. You know, write this stuff down. Put it on the wall or something. <laughs> Give me a booklet or something. No one told me how to handle this, right? And it's like, and the more worked up we get, the, the less intelligence we have. And it's like we really <laughs> kind of become caveman. <clears throat> Pain bad. It's about as advanced as we get. Lethargy. Uh, Sometimes it's technically called sloth and torpor, which I think is not so good because nobody uses that word. Sloth, torpor, restlessness. Lethargy, it's dullness. It's a dullness in the mind. It's It's kind of the checked out, I don't really want to be here. It's like almost like you want to, you're kind of trying to maybe even turn the mindfulness down or off because what you're seeing and what you're perceiving is so unwanted. And you're like, oh, I'm just, it's a dullness in the mind. It's a lack of interest, lack of energy. The kind of like, we just kind of like, all right, man, it's like, he will ring the bell eventually. <laughs> this sits just over, dude. Like, this one, this is, chalk this up in the last column. You know, like, right? That's lethargy, that's dullness, that's a kind of tapped out, right? right? And that's a tough one. And so it's called by, it's caused by discontent, by boredom, by depression, by kind of these dullness uh, states of mind. And it's really, really hard to snap out of it because what it, re- what it requires is a strong perception or kind of mental clarity where we have to kind of like, oh no, we have to kind of go, no, actually, I don't want to encourage the dullness. And the interesting thing about effort or application that my teacher Steve Armstrong talks about, which I used to really kind of not so buy into, but now I believe it's true, is whether you're totally miserable in your life or whether you're totally thriving, the effort is the same. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's the same amount. And so again, that mental clarity, that kind of rising it up, sitting up a little bit, trying to just get back into the breath and just, and not throwing, just not throwing in the towel really is the ultimate kind of uh, antidote to this kind of lethargy. And we kind of give in, we kind of throw in, we kind of say, oh. And then the last one, which is the hardest one of all, and the Buddha says lots about this. He says, this is the most destructive force in the mind, which is doubt. Which is a very unique hindrance. It's It's very much not like the other ones, where they're kind of like, you know, it's very, very psychological. It's very, very existential. It's very, very, I can't do this. I don't know what I was thinking, man. This is not for me. Either doubt in the practice, either this doesn't work, or it works for y'all, but not for me, or both. Doubt is so destructive because doubt is the one hindrance, and, I, and I've been victim of this. Doubt is the one hindrance that will actually get you to give up on the whole damn thing. Mm. You know, these Dharma retreats, this mindfulness thing, you know what? I'm going back to the spiritual supermarket. I'm going to fish me for a new practice because I don't think this one's for me. I'm going to get on the keto diet. <laughs> What's that book? The Wish? The promise, I'm going to get one of those crazy magical thinking things. I'm just going to manifest what I want through delusion and craving. Right? There's a lot of stuff out there. If you go to the spiritual supermarket, 
you know? Buddhism has the worst marketing campaign. <laughs> right? Terrible. So it's probably why it died out in India a long time ago. They're like, yeah, they're like, yeah. You could do it. You don't want to know what those guys are up to. Those guys are like dealing with pain and turning towards their difficulty. Like, no, no, no. We have some wonderful snake oil for you. Elixirs. And this has kind of been going on forever. This is kind of what people do. It's kind of what capitalism, American dream is all about. Well, we, we, our, our strategy for suffering is you can buy your way out of it. You know, that's kind of the problem. That's the snake oil of American culture. Just make enough of money and have enough uh, comfort and you'll be, you'll be totally happy. Yet nobody has yet to accomplish this, but we try anyway. Right? So doubt is very, very difficult. And there's not a lot of, um, in the present moment, here's the bad news, is, and I believe this is true, I've experienced this, is you can't really take doubt on its own turf. Usually doubt is best worked at in retro, what's called retrospective awareness. So maybe we sit in here and we have a big doubt episode and then later on it dissipates and we look back on it and go, okay, what was that about? Because when you're in it, it's hard to recognize because, even if you, you, because you believe it. It's so believing. It's so uh, seductive. We so believe the stories of doubt about ourselves. Hook, line, and sinker. We're like, yeah, I just, yeah, I guess I'm just bad at this. I mean, I'm kind of bad at everything, really. I mean, everything I've ever tried to do, I sort of failed at. And this is just another example of how that's true. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of times, in, in a secular sense, doubt is a lot of times correlated to the emotion of shame. It's like, not only do I have doubt, but, but underneath it all, I'm just sort of bad and not good at stuff. I can actually, I kind of think at life, you know? It's that, it's that, and, and that's really, it's hard to, in the moment, I usually find that I don't rise out of it. I usually have to look back at it and go, oh, that was weird, like, what was that about? I talk to people about it, and uh, doubt's really, really a tough one. And so the awakening factors, so these five hindrances, these seven awakening factors, they, they really kind of get things going. And, and, and I won't talk about all seven of them because it gets exhaustive after a while, but really what we want to try to get going is the first three. And I think the first, the first one is mindfulness, which isn't as misunderstood, but the second and the third are very misunderstood in kind of contemporary teachings on these. So we have, so when we, when we re- as soon as we recognize a hindrance, might you, now you have mindfulness. So as soon as you recognize the presence of one of the hindrances, you've already kind of headed, heading in 180 direction. Right? But that's only one. So then the second one is called Dhamma Vichaya, which oftentimes translates as investigation, which sounds too much like a CSI crime show to me, or interest. But I really think what it is is actually intelligence. Is that when we're mindful and we're aware, because mindfulness is a beautiful, wholesome mental state, there is some inherent, we have some what's called intuitive, inherent wisdom. And a lot of times when we approach a, a problem or a difficulty in our life with mindfulness, we have some intelligence about that. There's some cognitive intelligence, probably some emotional intelligence, having that affective awareness of oh, this is. I'm really having a lot of aversion and this is very unpleasant and I've had this before and I know I'm going to have this again and I know that I, I need to work with this, right? So we, we kind of approach it with a kind of intelligence and with that intelligence and that mindfulness, 
maybe a little bit more confidence and we start to, the awakening factors, we kind of start, they wake us up a little bit. They get us charged. The third one is called virya, which is a very important term in Pali that's always usually poorly translated as energy. And I think the original translators of Pali, when they came across a word they weren't sure about it, they kind of just gave it a benign English word, like, let's just call it energy. Like, what is energy? Because I can put all kinds of energy into all kinds of fruitless things. And so virya is more linked to actually, really what it means is courage, which I wish they would translate it as courage. It's an enthusiasm, it's an uplifting, it's a can-do. It's also, virya has its roots in kind of heroicism, a heroic kind of courage, where it's understood to take this practice on to really be challenged in this way is it, a very heroic thing to do. Most people don't do this. Right? To take your mind on as a project, instead of blaming the world and your past and your parents and society and culture for your broad problems, actually turning toward and saying, actually, no, this is all an inside job. <laughs> who wants to do, how many, I talk about a personal accountability. It's like from a Buddhist perspective, it's like, am I responsible for everything? It's like, yeah, everything. Isn't that good news? Don't you want to be responsible for everything? Mm-hmm. Don't you want to feel empowered? Right? So there's this kind of courage. That we, and it takes a lot of courage to take on the hindrances. It takes a lot of courage to take on greed and hatred and confusion and fear and frustration. Right? But, and, and, but that, that gives us a kind of courage, a kind of energy. And it's really, really hard. Once you start getting into these awakening factors, it's almost like each one gives you like an exponential uplift. Like mindfulness is pretty good, but then you get some intelligence, you get some confidence, pretty good. But once you're encouraged, you're kind of invincible. And you probably move through your life and some of your work and some of your relationships and probably all of you in lots of stuff that you do, you have this kind of mindful awareness and this intelligence and this courage and you tackle on big problems and you take on challenges in your life. You maybe just don't have that lexicon or that kind of understanding that this is, this is a very, you know, the Buddha like cleared this stuff up for us. He said, this, your tree is not just leaning, but it's blowing in the right direction. Right? And so we, wanted to, we, we develop these awakening factors and we maintain them and we kind of get those working for us. Right? <clears throat> we get those working for us. And it really counteracts, courage counteracts, really a lot of the hindrances, it definitely counteracts lethargy, counteracts restlessness because we're feeling, we're feeling motivated, we're feeling inspired, we're feeling very clear-minded at this point. And then the next one that comes is, is, is this word piti, which is another kind of, oftentimes translated as rapture, which isn't really the quite, word, the quite right word, but piti, it kind of, I, I, a, and it's a low grade, it's, it's joy. So out of courage, we start to get a little bit of joy, but more of a gentle joy, more of a kind of contented joy. And this is really a kind of where the sweet spot and all these awakening factors are. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a development. It's more of a maintenance. It's like, okay, you know, things are going okay. And when you look at the teachings of mindfulness in the Satipatthana, there's the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is kind of hard to describe for lots of people because there's lots of categories, but the primary task in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is really to overcome the hindrances, 
develop the awakening factors as a diagnostic tool for how we monitor our progress on the path. Right? It's your measuring stick. Right? And those of some of you have been on retreats before, you've been at this a little while. You know, if you noticed you're less attached than you once were, you're maybe less aversive, you're less restless, maybe you have more courage, you have more confidence. So you can kind of, the Buddha's trying to say, yeah, you want to use this as a kind of measuring stick. And this is the, the, the great measuring stick is trying to see that we are overcoming these things. We can and we will and, we, and, and, and it can be done. And, this is, and, and you don't even do it. It's like we just show up and this is kind of the work of wisdom. It kind of, when we start getting into this practice, there's a natural momentum. There's a, there's a dharma. That's a dharma quality. There's a, sometimes dharma is described as a kind of law. There's a, there's a momentum somewhere in the universe that actually can drive these kinds of things and that we can live into this more of a nibonic <coughs> state where we're not so troubled, we're not so worried, we're not so attached, we're not so aversive, we're not so full of doubt, right? by developing these things, and we develop and we maintain these things. And so we have these efforts, you know, we have these hindrances, these awakening factors, and to some degree, maybe all you kind of need to know, not light topics at all, but really should probably be, be front and center, should probably be, you know, in the introduction chapter to Dharma work, should probably, this should be the application. What is the application of practice? Well, this is what it is. These aren't teachings or things that I found buried in the canon somewhere that I thought were interesting. These are core things you see in almost every book on practice, on mindfulness for sure. They're in the Satipatthana. Right? They're, they're really, really the lowest hanging fruit. And you can start right away, and you are, have already started this kind of process, waking up. And then that joy leads to the last two, which is understood as kind of a contentment and integration. Right? So, and we kind of become more content, right? kind of, as, a, as a mind quality of life, as a, as a state of natural state of mind and body, we feel contented and we feel more integrated, which a lot of times the word is uh, or integration, contentment, and then the seventh awakening factor is equanimity. Which I'll talk about that. No date is. We don't know where that we are in this thing, but on the last morning, whenever that is, we'll do an equanimity practice, right? And so the interesting thing that's also true about these is that when you look at overcoming these hindrances and developing these awakening factors, there's one more list we could add to the equation, which we're kind of already doing. Uh, and that the question a lot of times people ask is, well, where in the mindfulness teachings are the Brahma Viharas? Kindness, compassion, gratitude, equanimity. Well, really, the, the awakening factors in the Brahma-viharas could stand next to each other in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. They're complementary. So one of the other ways to recognize and to overcome the hindrances is to develop the Brahma-viharas, which is more, not so much of a technical aspect, but more of the relational side, the nonverbal side, Right? So if we are just generally more kind to ourselves, more kindness in our experience, the hindrances are less likely to grab you. And you're less likely to be over-identified with them. And you're less likely to blame yourself for having them. Right? So metta, again, is kind of the bomb of all these things. If we can get an undercurrent, and that's why we really want to develop. So again, we want to develop these wholesome 
constructive mental states where we, there's a whole pedigree of lists. We have the seven awakening factors. We want to develop and maintain those. We have these Brahma Viharas, kindness, compassion, gratitude, equanimity. We want to develop and maintain those. Gratitude, sila, ethics, generosity. These are all sort of dharma awakening developments and so we can develop them all. We can maintain them all and they all, everything ends up and we could say in many ways the goal of the practice is equanimity which is all the streams, all the dharma streams flow into the, the, the ocean of equanimity which we talked about a little bit today but that's really that, that, really that view, that recognition that life is both. We both have hindrances and we have awakening factors. We have tragedy and we have beauty. We have joy and we have sorrow. We have hatred and we have love. This is the the way of things. This is how it is here. This is is the reality of reality. You're going to... You constantly find yourself cycling and dancing and moving through these two kind of vast experiences all the time. Everybody gets it. Right? And so, but we don't. We, we, we develop these kind of, uh, because of our woundedness and the things that we've been through, we, we try to go through the world and we try to protect ourselves from the tragedy and the sorrow. You can't do it. Right? And, and, and when, the, when, the, when people ask the Buddha, they, all the time they say, yeah, you're kind of making sense, but it seems like pretty hard. Like there's like another item on the menu we don't know about. And it seems really hard. And he said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to try. <clears throat> if it were not possible to do this, I would not ask you to try. But because it's possible, because you can do this, and I ask you to try. Right? And so we really, you can't really have one without the other. Right? And so again, that's why we, we have this, these hard practices of these illimitables. It's like, yeah, there's, there's no uh, end. And, and we, can, we don't want to become lost in despair. If we get too focused and too wrapped up in the sorrow of the world, we collapse underneath it. Right? So easy to do, especially nowadays. I mean, I could probably in a couple minutes convince you that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? How do you know? Nobody knows what's going on. It's been like this. This is how it is. You know, greed, hatred, confusion, generosity, kindness, and wisdom. It's like this is kind of the human experience. And so it doesn't belong to you. The mind doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. But for this incarnation, for this period of time, for this version of the human experience that you happen to embody, if you so choose to, it's your job to take care of it. Right? And there's a lot of, uh, and, and, and it's worth it because there's a lot of joy and a lot of contentment and a lot of understanding and we meet other people on the way who are also trying. Right? We, so you have to kind of opt in. You know, there's, there's an opt in here, I think, that it's kind of, we have to at some point make some kind of a choice and I was talking about this in the group, and I'll talk about this more. And, and you know, there's, there's, a, there's a wide path here, and there's a deep path. And the deep path isn't necessarily better than the wide path. And some people just, you know, go on a couple of retreats here and there. They practice on the day to day, and they, they they live a good life, and they're happy, and that's that's good. Mindfulness is 
It's so amazing to me. I mean, I'm not that old. I mean, I've only been doing this for 30 years, but 30 years ago, nobody knew what mindfulness was. They didn't even use the word mindfulness on Vipassana retreats. They used the word Vipassana insight. If you sat at a retreat, you could, I sat a three-month retreat at IMS in 2003, and I don't think they said the word mindfulness the whole time. Now it's all we say. And because we, we get people to think like John Kabat-Zinn and, 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 and Dan Goleman and Richard Davidson who have really been doing this stealth dharma underground of trying to get it out there through the fields of science and through psychology and neuroscience. Right? So it's pretty exciting, actually, that people are recognizing the familiarity this, or this making sense. What else are you going to do? You know? Just continue to cling and push away and cling and push away? We really only have two options. We can wake up or we can just live a life of perpetual wandering and just thinking happiness is about getting what you want and avoiding what you don't want. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's largely the opt-in for most people. They just do everything they can to try to avoid and change and predict and control and be greedy and be aversive and be unkind and do anything they can to get the things that they want and avoid the things that they don't want. Most people are just locked into hindrance number one and hindrance number two. And, and I, I guarantee you there's been millions of people who have lived an entire lifetime with those drivers, those deeply embedded evolutionary drivers. Sometimes they make it look good too, actually, don't they? Maybe ignorance is bliss, but I don't think so. Maybe bliss isn't available. Maybe that's the great delusion. Enlightenment, bliss. Or maybe it's just a combination of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and tragedy and beauty and we do the best we can to move through that space in a way that's constructive. And seeing that really an awakened life is an awakened heart. And none of this is mystical or metaphysical or esoteric. All of the Dharma teachings I have experienced and t- try to teach, are, these are very pragmatic tools that you can use and you can develop and you can implement right now. And you have been for the last couple of days. The Buddha wasn't trying to trick anybody with big ideas about the nature of the universe or the nature of mind. He wasn't interested in any of that. He was interested in how you can flourish in this world how you can make meaning and have purpose and, and look at all of the things in this life and say, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do something good with this, whatever this is, however this is. And he says, that's what you can do if you so choose to take on these practices. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have a time to get some exercise, to walk, use the bathroom, and we'll be back here in 12 minutes or so for our... our last formal set of the day. So thank you.